Now is the time to put your principles first. It's not a time to sit silent. Okay. I won't. I never do. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From with Pacifica you. Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon, on the Central Coast, on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio, on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids, on WPRR. In New Orleans, on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire, on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. Hope you guys are staying away from the floods. Up in Seattle on KODX, Goldendale, Washington's KVGD, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day. For your listening convenience on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, by now, I'm sure you have heard many of the stories of the continuing fallout from Donald Trump's visit last weekend to Japan when he, uh, among other things, wished uh, U.S. troops there a happy Memorial Day. Took a shot at the former vice president turned 2020 pre- uh, Democratic uh, presidential hopeful Joe Biden on foreign soil, which even rankled some Republicans here back home, particularly when Trump appeared to side with North Korean dictator Kim Jong Un in doing so in this attack on Biden. Then there was the story that broke on Thursday. The White House officials ordered the military to keep the U.S. Uh, the USS John McCain aircraft carrier out of sight of the president because Trump just can't stand the late senator who survived five years of torture and solitary confinement as a prisoner of war in Vietnam, where he refused to be released until the others under his command were released as well. So no wonder Donald Trump hates him. Donald Trump, who was a draft dodger during that same war, Administration officials are disputing some of that report concerning the McCain, uh, but the fact that this administration lies so much about absolutely everything that there's actually no way we'll ever know who's telling the truth here. And the fact that this is even a thing under this man-child president that he has to be treated this way, that alone speaks volumes. But as to the actual content of the talks 
in Japan, in Asia, and if it may lead to a breakthrough in the once again deteriorating relationship with nuclear-armed North Korea after uh, recent missile tests there, well, that part of Trump's visit to Asia has received much less notice. So we're going to try to correct that um, corporate media failure today a little bit with a conversation about where things now stand in the standoff between Trump and Kim Jong-un, as well as the administration's on-again, off-again saber-rattling with Iran over nuclear weapons after Donald Trump decided to pull out of the anti-nuclear treaty that had been working. We'll be talking with MIT's South Asian security and nuclear proliferation expert Vipin Narang shortly. Uh, and we'll hit the latest news in Trump's latest standoff with our ally, Mexico, momentarily. Uh, and if we've got some time, a few more thoughts on impeachment today, no matter how much I hate talking about it all, frankly. But first... Heavy rains in the Midwest are causing levees to breach along the Mississippi and Arkansas rivers, which may eventually put thousands of homes in danger. Desi Doyen, uh, you spoke on your uh, recent Green News report about how we're having a pause, at least a pause in the, pause in the rain. severe weather. Yeah. yeah, and it's not much of a pause, it turns out. But uh, as you uh, yeah, we got more storms more coming. Heavy storms yeah. predicted. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, you also warned about these floods that were coming, and they are coming uh, heavy right now. The Dardanelle Levee along the Arkansas River breached early on Friday near the community of Hullah Bend. Last I was able to check, the breach was about 40 feet long and s sending water gushing into farmland that already had been saturated by leaks in the levee a day earlier and, of course, by the heavy rains. About 75 homes just downriver from the city of Dardanelle have so far been impacted by flooding in a three-mile area, but that is expected to get worse. Yell County officials urged everyone in the area to evacuate immediately. The rushing water is expected to spread to an area of about 500 people. And then Dardanelle, a city of about 4,700 people, was preparing for floodwaters <clears throat> to eventually encroach there. With their mayor writing on Facebook on Friday morning, I ask you to please not panic. We have time to prepare for this, he said in his call to not panic coming from Yell County, Arkansas, <laughs> near Holla Bend. <laughs> The uh, Arkansas River at Dardanelle was nearly two feet above its record crest before the breach. Uh, more and than it's not done yet. No, it's not. Uh, 500 homes have been directly impacted by the flooding in Arkansas already, according to state officials. Uh, if more levees along the Arkansas River breach, many more could be in the path of flooding. The biggest concern is uh, in the unprecedented pressure that the flooding has put on the levees, apparently. They have never held back this much water for this long. This could affect thousands of homes in 14 counties near the river, as several levees have already overtopped in this record-breaking flooding. There are also mandatory evacuation orders in Missouri because of the rising Mississippi River. Mandatory evacuations in West Quincy, 80 flood gauges running throughout 10 different states now are experiencing major flooding, the uh, the highest category 
And according to the Missouri Department of Transportation today, more than 300 roads are underwater with the potential for uh, for more to come in what is looking to be the worst flooding uh, seen since at least the uh, Mississippi floods in St. Louis in 1993. But uh, portions of, you know, some states, northern Oklahoma through central Kansas, have seen 15 to 20 inches of rain during the month of May. That is 300 to 400 percent of the normal amount. Uh, though, what does normal really mean anymore, Des? Yeah, when we're point? talking a climate-changed atmosphere, that uh, the baseline of, of climate influence has raised the baseline of, of all of these extreme weather events. And, you know, there are studies that have shown that the human intervention in the Mississippi River with all the levees and the dams that were intended to control these floods have actually made flooding worse. The water has to go somewhere, and it will. And it also points out this particular level of this round of flood that we're having, which we seem to be having every year now, also shows that our infrastructure that was built for 20th century weather conditions is not ready to handle 21st century weather conditions under climate change. We've got a lot of work ahead to deal with this. A Green New Deal would help with that. Oh, yeah. But, you know, we actually need to address these things and we need to address them comprehensively throughout the country. Well, it's going to be hard to address them over the uh, uh, this well over the next few days here, as heavy rain is once again now forecast for parts of Oklahoma yeah. and Kansas, with another four to six inches possible next week. So buckle up for more flooding, and potentially the return of tornado swarms that have ravaged the Midwest uh, over the past month, with an insane more than 500 reported during the month of May. So there's your man-induced natural disaster update for the day. Now on to our man-induced, man-made disasters flowing out of the White House now at an increasingly alarming rate. The latest was announced late on Thursday, shortly after we got off air. And now several Republicans in Congress and major business groups on Friday are slamming Donald Trump's threat to impose a 5% tariff on all Mexican goods starting next month, warning that the move would hurt both the U.S. economy and the chances of Congress approving Trump's new proposed trade deal with Mexico and Canada. The president said Thursday that the tariffs against Mexico... Our ally would rise by 5% each month to as high as 25% in October unless Mexico, quote, substantially stops the number of migrants entering the U.S. illegally. A senior administration official and two sources familiar said business groups and federal agencies were not informed of the president's tariffs threat ahead of time. According to NBC sources, that includes a uh, senior administration official and two other sources. But a fourth source familiar said the relevant congressional committees were also not informed in advance of the announcement. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which is the nation's largest lobbying group and a huge Republican Party promoter, uh, confirmed in a press call on Friday that they are exploring legal options against the administration to try to stop this, including filing a lawsuit against the White House. Sources at other business groups say they are exploring litigation and legislative options as well. Republicans in Congress, those who were willing to speak up about it, were none too happy. Joni Ernst, Republican of Iowa, 
Cong- uh, Senator uh, said in a statement on Friday that if the president goes through with this, I'm afraid progress to get this trade agreement across the finish line will be stifled. While I support the need for comprehensive border security, she said, and a permanent fix to illegal immigration, this is not the right path forward. Senior Senator from Iowa Chuck Grassley, uh, also a Republican and the Senate Finance Committee chair, blasted the decision by Trump, even suggesting that he was abusing his presidential authority. Nice of you to notice, Chuck Grassley. Sorry about that. Trade policy and border security are separate issues, Grassley said in his statement. This is a misuse of presidential authority and counter to congressional intent. Pat Toomey, Republican of Pennsylvania, said Friday the tariffs are the wrong remedy and they are misguided. A blanket tax increase on everything Americans purchase from Mexico is the wrong remedy, he said. The senator is, of course, correct that this is a tax increase on Americans. Despite our insane president's continued insistence that tariffs against foreign nations are somehow paid by those foreign nations rather than importers and American consumers who are forced to pay those new taxes. Congressman Justin Amash of Michigan. Oh, yeah, I remember him. Uh, The lone Republican lawmaker calling for impeachment proceedings against this president. He derided the president as well. And his congressional supporters in a tweet on Thursday, he said, how many times will Congress let the president unilaterally raise taxes on Americans? He answers all the times. Lawmakers uh, remained, many of them, back in their congressional districts for the week-long recess. After Memorial Day, most Republicans maintained silence over the announcement for some reason. The uh, president staunchly defended his position on Friday, tweeting that it's about, quote, stopping drugs as well as illegals, falsely asserting that it's uh, companies in Mexico who will pay these tariffs rather than those in the U.S. He said, quote, in order to in order not to pay tariffs, if they start rising, companies will leave Mexico, which has taken 30 percent of our auto industry and come back to the U.S.A. Uh, Mexico must take back their country from drug lords and cartels. So this has uh, uh, this idea that now he's conflating trade with immigration and using this as some kind of cudgel. Well, it's probably not going to work and it is going to help. uh, It is going to hurt. Well, you Americans. Every American auto factory, for example, depends on Mexican parts to build its cars or trucks. This is uh, this would add about an average of fifteen hundred dollars to every car sold here. It would hurt auto production, according to uh, experts, by as much as, um, well, three million vehicles a year or an 18 percent drop from current levels if this happens. Uh, About 16 percent of all auto parts used by U.S. assembly plants actually come from Mexico and cannot be easily made here. Uh, A 25 percent tariff on all imports from Mexico would add about twenty eight billion dollars a year to the cost of completed vehicles, according to these experts, which, yes, Americans would be paying in new taxes. The U.S. auto industry is already struggling with 
Trump uh, Trump's tariffs on steel and aluminum. Both GM and Ford have said that the uh, rising prices of commodities due to those tariffs have raised their costs by more than one billion dollars each. And automakers are going to have to start cutting U.S. jobs, they warn. This is a lot of uh, a lot of products, not just automobiles, by the way. Uh, in a series of tweets about this on Friday, Trump, which I won't read all to you, you're welcome. <laughs> Trump uh, defended his decision to impose these tariffs, attacking Mexico, attacking Democrats, attacking decades of foreign policy for what he created, what he alleged uh, created a pipeline of migrants who brought drugs and crimes into U.S. cities. His Twitter post hit on so many themes that it was unclear, says Washington Post, what precisely he was actually demanding in exchange for waiving the penalties. Uh, White House officials also could not articulate what Trump actually wanted Mexico to do, aside from simply stopping migrants from crossing the border somehow. All of this has led global markets to plunge on uh, on Friday, and um, we are talking about some three hundred and forty six billion dollars in goods that come from Mexico that are going to be more expensive in the coming days if uh, Trump is not stopped one way or another, whether it's by a lawsuit, whether it's by an impeachment or whether it's by him coming to his senses. And what are the chances of that? Probably pretty little. We'll uh, pick up on that point and much more straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. The broadcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. There's no sound that no one knows. What does the fox say? That may as well be what Fox says. Uh, it would be more informative than what they're getting now. Uh, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, you're welcome. We're going to talk not much about impeachment today for a change. We've been talking a lot about that need and any number of uh, you know cabinet members of his, that of Donald Trump's, that also need to be impeached. And frankly, as I think Desi will attest, I really hate talking about it and <laughs> yes. about the criminal obstruction findings of the Mueller report, etc. I don't enjoy it. There are so many other issues that I would prefer to talk about, to be frank, uh, because everything to do with Trump is just so stupid in so many ways that I would rather find anything else to talk about. Now, part of me feels like I'm wasting your time by talking about it. But then, you know, we are talking about the likely, I would say very likely, impeachment of a president of the United States at this point, which does seem kind of important. And now you've got more than 50 House Democrats calling for it, uh, uh, including a bunch of House committee chairs, a whole bunch of 2020 Democratic presidential candidates uh, uh, calling for it. And then I see a story like this from an article on Michigan conservative Republican Congressman Justin Amash, the only Republican to date to call for Trump's impeachment. Uh, as I've, I've noted many times now, he is really the one person in Congress who is making the best case for impeachment 
by explaining in very clear terms in Twitter threads why the Mueller report, which he actually bothered to read, lays out clear grounds for impeachment on multiple obstruction charges by this president. Well, Amash held his first town hall back in his uh, home district of Grand Rapids, Michigan, on uh, on Tuesday. Hi, WPRR, Public Reality Radio in Grand Rapids. I hope some of you went there. Uh, in any event, we, we covered uh, the fact that he received an ovation, played some of his uh, responses at the Q&A. But last night, John Glazer of the Libertarian Cato Institute cited this quote from this NBC article about that town hall. And he added the comment, this is basically everything. And I kind of have to agree with him. The NBC article uh, says uh, Kathy Garnett, a Republican who supported Amash and the president, said she was upset about Amash's position but wanted to hear his reasoning. So she went to the town hall. She said that she will definitely support Trump in 2020, but that Tuesday night was the first time she had heard that the Mueller report did not completely exonerate the president. She said, I was surprised to hear there was anything negative in the Mueller report at all about President Trump. I hadn't heard that before, she said. I've mainly listened to conservative news and I hadn't heard anything negative about that report. And President Trump has been exonerated. This blew my mind that she had no idea that the Mueller report actually uh, had negative things to say about the president. In fact, details all of these crimes. And this is someone who is this uh, woman uh, quoted here, Kathy Garnett. She's not uh, someone who is completely out to lunch, who doesn't pay attention to politics because she went to Justin Amash's town hall. So she knows enough about politics to do that. And yet she had not heard. She thought the Mueller report completely exonerated Donald Trump when it does the complete opposite. I say all of this by uh, noting that uh, when I feel bad about covering the Mueller report, about impeachment, the need for it, all that, I guess I shouldn't feel that bad because clearly there are folks out there Someone uh, at uh, WPRR, let Kathy Garnett know she should tune into the broadcast every day <laughs> on WPRR. Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, if you listen only to conservative radio and conservative news, or I should say right, right wing, wing. Thank you. Yeah, that, uh, that you're going to get a very wrong idea of what's actually happening. Yeah, but I had no idea it was this wrong. Uh, Cheryl Wainless, a Republican who has uh, supported Amash, said that she was confused by his position, according to NBC. But after hearing him speak, doesn't, quote, have a problem proceeding with impeachment. This is a Republican. She said, uh, though, in the back of my mind, I know it's not going to pass the Senate most likely. But if the process has to go this far, I think that's fine. Go ahead. And this is a lesson, frankly, for Democrats. If you make the case uh, loudly and clearly, even Republicans will consider uh, what you have to say if they hear about it. Uh, some more of them may be hearing about it soon. Um, a new uh, group formed apparently by Bill Kristol. Uh, who has spent his life being wrong about absolutely everything until he finally ended up being right for the first time regarding Donald Trump. Uh, his new group, Republicans for the Rule of Law, last night released this two or so minute video featuring senior GOP attorneys Jeff Harris, 
who uh, worked in the Reagan administration, Paul Rosenzweig, who worked in the uh, George W. Bush administration, and Don Ayer, who worked for George H.W. Bush, spelling out what hopefully many well-informed listeners of the broadcast already know, but apparently much of the world, particularly Republicans, like that woman in Michigan, need to hear and see in uh, apparently short video sound bites. Here's what that sounds like. This administration, in my view, has an absolute disregard for the law. The Mueller report makes a very strong case on obstruction of justice. Were the president anybody other than the president, he would have been subject to indictment. I was the deputy associate attorney general in the Reagan administration. I was a Republican appointee at the Department of Homeland Security. And I served as deputy attorney general under George H.W. Bush. In the Mueller report, there is a damning case of obstruction of justice by the president. Obstruction of justice is any act to interfere with an investigation being conducted. Immediately after the president takes office, he begins to interfere in the Russian investigation. The first thing he does is he tries to influence the head of the FBI, James Comey, in asking him to go easy on Michael Flynn. And when that doesn't work out, he fires James Comey. You then had very shortly thereafter the appointment of the special counsel, Robert Mueller. The president then actively involved himself in trying to prevent Mueller from becoming the special counsel and then ultimately to be removed. The most notable obstructive act was the president's instruction to his White House counsel, Don McGahn, to fire Mr. Mueller. Uh, McGahn refused to do it. And then the president asked Don McGahn to put a false document in the file saying that the president never ordered him to fire Barb Mueller. Asking a witness to lie to create a false record is a classic case of obstruction of justice. One of the most disturbing things to me is the conduct of Republicans. They know that there is a damning case in the Mueller report of obstruction of justice by the president, and they are acting like it's not. Conservatives are all about conserving, conserving history, conserving morality, conserving the country. If you really believe in those sorts of principles, now is the time to put your principles first. It's not a time to sit silent. That's Republicans for the rule of law. They plan on running a shorter version of that on uh, on a TV set near you. Hopefully that means on Fox News and on Fox and Friends. So folks like Donald Trump actually see it and folks like Kathy Garnett up in uh, Grand Rapids uh, so they can learn more about it. So, yeah, I guess we do need to continue talking about impeachment as much as I hate it. But for the moment... I'm going to switch topics here to North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, who reportedly executed his top nuclear envoy and four other top foreign ministry officials uh, in March as retribution for the failed summit in Hanoi with Donald Trump earlier this year. That, according to a still unconfirmed report from a single anonymous source in South Korea's largest newspaper. It was uh, picked up by Bloomberg News. We don't know if it's true or not, but don't worry. Donald Trump, the great negotiator, has this one handled, right? No need to worry about Kim, a guy who would murder his top nuclear negotiator because Trump walked out of a summit and who has reportedly been busy, uh, Kim, uh, been busy building nuclear weapons and testing ballistic missiles over the past year or two. 
Anyway, I've been trying to get to this story all week, and I'm actually going to do it today. MIT South Asia security expert Vipin Narang joins us next for a conversation that has not been had this week, as the media has been consumed, including us, by impeachment, Mueller, and all manner of other things. That conversation straight ahead on today's broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. North Korea confirmed early in May that it had fired multiple rocket launchers and what is described as tactical guided weapons from its east coast the previous day under the personal supervision of leader Kim Jong-un, with experts saying the test included a short-range ballistic missile. That word ballistic is important in this context. I'll get to that in a moment. The test, according to The Washington Post, uh, did not invalidate North Korea's self-declared moratorium on intercontinental ballistic missile tests, but clearly raises tensions with both Washington and Seoul. Kim was quoted by the state-run Korean Central News Agency, uh, urging his troops to bear in mind, quote, the iron truth that genuine peace and security are ensured and guaranteed only by powerful strength, unquote. Well, that is a message, frankly, peace through strength, that uh, while perhaps seen as aggressive by hawks here in the U.S., that echoes almost exactly the rhetoric from American presidents going back to at least the time of Ronald Reagan and certainly echoed by Donald J. Trump. Earlier in May, Trump downplayed new threats from North Korea and uh, said he wanted to leave the door open to diplomacy. Jeff Lewis, a scholar at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at uh, Monterey in California, said that the tests of these new short-range ballistic missiles makes this very similar to 2006 when North Korea moved to end its flight test moratorium, starting with short-range missiles. That didn't technically violate it, uh, didn't violate their moratorium on longer range intercontinental ballistic missile tests. At the time, he says, back in 2006, according to Lewis, the Bush administration downplayed those short range missile tests, just like Trump seems to be doing now. But in hindsight, notes Lewis, it was a warning of the fireworks to come a few months later in July. The launches in early May set off a flurry of calls and meetings between the U.S. Secretary of State and Japan and South Korea's foreign minister, as well as the national security directors from each, uh, from each of the countries. In a show of frustration with Pyongyang, South Korea's presidential Blue House said it was, quote, very concerned about North Korea's actions which it said went against a September military cooperation agreement between the two sides. They urged North Korea to stop actions that raise military tensions on the Korean peninsula. Pyongyang had announced a moratorium on all nuclear and intercontinental ballistic missiles, 
uh, missile testing back in November of 2017, helping to set the stage for the talks with South Korea and the U.S., but tensions have grown since the breakdown of a summit in Hanoi between Donald Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. That in late February, when Trump reportedly walked out of his meeting with Kim. Since then, if we can believe this report from uh, South Korea, uh, largest their largest newspaper, since then uh, Kim has executed his top nuclear negotiator and four members of the foreign ministry. That report is unconfirmed, however. In the meantime, the North's regime is said to be frustrated with the continued imposition of U.N. National uh, U.N. Security Council sanctions and by what it sees as unilateral U.S. demands that it disarm. In a speech last month, Kim said he would be prepared to meet Trump for a third summit, but only if the U.S. fundamentally changed its approach. He also warned that his patience was running out and gave the U.S. until the end of the year to make a bold decision. What does that mean? What does that deadline mean? Well, perhaps my guest, who joins us in a moment, will know. But listening to Trump over this past weekend while he was in neighboring Japan for talks with Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, it was almost as though North Korea didn't just conduct two separate missile tests this month, firing off at least three ballistic missiles in direct contravention of U.N. Security Council resolutions. During a joint news conference with Abe, Trump said, quote, my people think it could have been a violation But I view it differently, he said. Uh, The president's national security advisor, John Bolton, uh, the day before had told reporters that there was no doubt that North Korea had violated the Security Council resolutions by firing off short range ballistic missiles. But Trump said it doesn't matter. All I know is that there have been no nuclear tests. There have been no ballistic missiles going out, no long range missiles going out, he said. Last week, he also told Fox News Sunday that the North Koreans haven't had any tests over the last two years. Zero, he said. Falsely. On May 4th and May 9th, North Korea did launch a number of missiles which flew hundreds of miles before landing in the sea. So what, if anything, is actually going on here? Is Trump right to downplay whatever North Korea is doing? Do these tests violate North Koreans' own self-moratorium on such tests or U.N. Security Council resolutions against ballistic missile testing? And what is the difference between a short or long-range projectile versus a ballistic missile, if any? Joining us now to help sort out some of this mess, which was already confusing before we had Donald Trump as our president, frankly is Vipin Narang. He's an associate professor of political science at MIT and a member of MIT's Security Studies program, where he focuses on nuclear proliferation and strategy, as well as South Asian security. He's also the author of the award-winning Nuclear Strategy in the Modern Era. Vipin Narang, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for having me. So uh, Donald Trump uh, tweeted out over the weekend, uh, quote, North Korea fired off some small weapons which disturb some of my people and others, but not me. (laughs) 
I have confidence that Chairman Kim will keep his promise to me, he said. Is is Trump right here? Are these nothing more than some small weapons, as he says? Or is this something more sinister, as his wildly hawkish national security director, uh, John Bolton, pretty clearly asserted in what seemed to be a contradiction of his boss? Yeah, uh, good question, Brad. Uh, the answer to that is yes, both. Um, okay. So let's go back to May 4th and May 9th. Uh-huh. Uh, what's interesting is North Korea tested after 522 days, basically short-range ballistic missiles Mm -hmm. that were brand new. They debuted a missile we hadn't seen tested before. Uh, It was a solid-fuel missile, and that's important because uh, so far the mainstay of North Korea's long-range missiles are liquid-fueled missiles, which take a long time to fuel. We can see them, you know, fueling Mm -hmm. them on the test stand if they put them out in the open. Uh, They're less responsive uh, and less survivable. And Mm. I think the important piece that kind of gets overlooked of the May 4th and May 9th test for North Korea is they're getting more comfortable and more experienced with solid fuel. And it's only a matter of time if we don't solve this problem that the solid fuel missiles may show up and that technology may show up in the long range missiles, which benefits North Korea's program. It makes uh, the nuclear force more responsive, more survivable, helps them penetrate missile defenses. Um, But on the other hand, they were short range missiles. and the wiggle room on whether they were ballistic missiles or not mm-hmm. uh, turns on a very particular characteristic, characteristic of the trajectory of this missile, which the U.S. intelligence community has called a KN-23. Uh, I called it, uh, a lot of us called it, the Kim Skander missile, because it's a doppelganger of the Russian Iskander short-range ballistic missile. Uh, before they called it the KN-23, I actually called it the KNFU, but that, that was kind of... A joke uh, that a lot of the analysts had about uh, this particular missile, because it was, you know, after almost a year and a half of not testing missiles, mm-hmm. that the uh, North Koreans decided to test this missile. Um, well, look, look, let me so jump. It, let me jump in just to uh, yep. make make some sense of this. I mean, the, these these uh, missiles uh, from early May went reportedly as far as three hundred miles. Are those are considered short are, range yeah, so, you versus know, any, long range? Anything anything under five hundred kilometers is considered a short range ballistic missile, and so it is technically a short range missile. And this, the, the South Koreans and President Trump have exploited uh, kind of a, a gray area about this particular missile because it flies on a very low trajectory. So the apogee is very low, mm-hmm. and the warhead doesn't separate. So it doesn't fly on a, on a technically strictly ballistic trajectory. It's what's called a quasi-ballistic missile in some, uh, by some classifications. And the fact that it can be classified as a quasi-ballistic missile gives the South Koreans and President Trump just enough wiggle room to say it's not a ballistic missile. But in a lot of ways, it doesn't matter. It still threatens South Korea. It can still potentially carry a compact nuclear warhead. Uh, and it creates problems, potentially, for missile defenses in the region. Uh, so whether you call it a mango, it doesn't really matter. It's still uh, a test that North Korea hadn't conduct- conducted, or a type of test that hadn't conducted in almost uh, a year and a half. Uh, and, so, and, and forgive me for being a, a layman here, but what would be the difference between a ballistic missile and a normal non-ballistic missile? Uh, and then I guess we can also add in a projectile, as uh, South Korea seems to uh, uh, describe some of these launches. Not much. I mean, that's right. You know, it's the a, a lot of this turns on very specific characteristics of whether the missile uh, follows a strictly ballistic trajectory after it burns off the solid fuel, or whether. Uh, you know, it's burning fuel the entire time. Mm-hmm. The lower apogee stresses the missile a little bit more, which is why it's not, uh, it's still within the atmosphere. And so these particular types of short-range ballistic missiles, you know, th- 
there are different classifications. You call it a projectile. You could call it a quasi-ballistic missile. You could call it a ballistic missile. Uh, and really, the choice of terminology used is political. And I, uh, I think the South Koreans and President Trump have avoided calling it a ballistic missile so that they can keep the door open for negotiations. They have very clearly said, and President Trump has said, that this is uh, not a violation of the moratorium that President or that Chairman Kim, uh, you know, conveyed to him, mm-hmm. which both Secretary Pompeo and President Trump have indicated apply very narrowly to intercontinental ballistic missiles. Now, the problem with Trump and Secretary Pompeo saying that is that they're basically saying then that they will tolerate missile tests short of that, including medium-range ballistic missiles that overfly Japan, which is what got us in the crisis in 2017. And the South Koreans have tried to avoid calling it a ballistic missile also to keep the spirit uh, and the potential for inter-Korean dialogue to continue. Now, John Bolton is also correct in the sense that this was is technically a violation of U.N. Security Council resolutions. Uh-huh. But my sense is President Trump probably hasn't read those U.N. Security Council <laughs> resolutions. He probably doesn't care what's in them anyway. Right. Uh, and what he really cares about is the personal commitment that Chairman Kim made to him. And it's probably true this doesn't violate the letter of that commitment. It probably doesn't violate the spirit because it is short-range. But I think the risk now is that by green-lighting North Korean tests short of ICBMs, it may encourage or embolden Kim Jong-un to continue testing more frequently and maybe longer-range missiles. And we've seen President Trump flip very quickly. So if Kim Jong-un makes the mistake of you know, pushing the line just a little bit too far mm-hmm. or testing one missile too many, President Trump can flip and feel betrayed very quickly. And then we might lose the diplomatic... Right now there is no momentum for working-level talks or diplomacy, but if you get a missile test that really pushes the line, I think we could really end up back in 2017 without the possibility of a diplomatic off-ramp like we had with Singapore. So is it safe to say then that this all the downplaying that we're seeing from the uh, from the U.S., setting aside uh, John Bolton for a second, but from uh, Donald Trump, from Pompeo, and from South Korea, is essentially trying to keep things cooled down so that we can somehow get back onto a diplomatic track rather than letting this get out of hand at this point? I think so. I think that's the optimistic reading, and I think there's one. There, there, there are a couple of reasons. You know, if we if we're trying to put ourselves, you know, in uh, Kim Jong Un's shoes, which mm-hmm. is very difficult to do since he's nobody really knows how he thinks or right. Uh, but you know, the 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 timing of the May fourth and May ninth KN twenty three tests uh, was co- it coincided with a joint exercise that the U.S. and South Koreans do, the Dongmeng exercise mm-hmm. and drills, which. So, you, you know, you could leave open the possibility, and the optimistic reading is that the KN-23 test was just a tit-for-tat against that. Uh, and, you know, another reading is, you know, Kim Jong-un also left Hanoi uh, somewhat humiliated. He walked away thinking he was going to get a step-by-step phased deal with President Trump and everything the U.S., including Steve Began's speech at Stanford a couple weeks before the Hanoi summit, seemed to suggest that that's where we're going. So when President Trump... Uh, doubled down and insisted that Kim Jong-un give up everything up front, ballistic missiles, nuclear weapons, mm-hmm. chemical and biological weapons, before any sanctions relief. Kim Jong-un, you know, felt, must have, you know, probably felt humiliated. And he has hardliners at home, too. We forget that North Korea has domestic politics as well. For, you know, John Bolton mm-hmm. at home here in the United States, Kim Jong-un has a Kim Jong-chol, who is a hardliner in North Korea. And, you know, testing conventional missiles signals, you know, to his domestic audience as well, that he's still strong in defense and that he hasn't been, you know, com- he hasn't forgotten about the defense of North Korea or bartered away at Hanoi. And so, you know, there, there are a couple objectives that could have been fulfilled by these May 4th and May 9th tests, including 
you know, the exercises in South Korea uh, with the United States, but also appeasing domestic hardliners at home for Kim Jong-un. And so when, when they downplay the test, it could, it could be trying to see if it's just a one-off. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if it continues, then I think, you know, President Trump and uh, President Moon in South Korea will have to confront the fact that Kim Jong-un has, uh, you know, shifted his strategy and is pushing the line. But we also shouldn't forget that Kim Jong-un has very clearly said that there is an end-of-year deadline for the United States yeah. to moderate its position. Uh, and we should take that seriously. If there's one thing Kim Jong-un has been uh, known to, you know, has, has shown over the years, is he lives up to his word. And what he says he's going to do, he often does. And so when he says uh, they need to make bold decisions by the end of the year, you, you take that uh, as a very serious threat. Yeah, and it's very clear what they mean by that. They've said it very clearly. I think, you know, uh, reading KCNA and listening to North Korean interlocutors that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, make, make speeches and statements, it's very clear what they mean by the United States making a bold decision. That is shifting away from insisting on unilateral disarmament up front, which the North Koreans have never accepted or never stated that they're willing to do, and move to what they hope and anticipate in Hanoi, which is a uh, step-by-step phase process where North Korea gives up a little, like shuts down the facilities, the main fissile material production facilities at the Yongbyon facility, mm-hmm. uh, in exchange for some sanctions relief. Uh, and you, you know, give a little. T- you know, both sides give a little in a in a phase process. And they very clearly said that if the United States doesn't do that, the North Koreans will have to find a new way. And if we don't, then you know, Kim Jong Un may ring in the new year with a bang. Or a long-range missile test. Oh, that's disturbing. You, you. It seems like this comes back to what we had uh, talked about quite a bit on this show early on, uh, particularly during uh, Donald Trump's fire and fury phase, and then in his uh, diplomacy phase. Uh, the sort of the differing uh, uh, definitions that the North seems to have, at least with Donald Trump, when it comes to denuclearization. He was talking about. Uh, denuclearization. Donald Trump seemed to think that meant North Korea was going to do away with all of its nuclear weapons. But what Kim has been talking about is denuclearization of the peninsula. That means everybody. That means U.S. as well. Correct? Correct. And uh, the the one problem we have is we don't have an agreed upon definition of denuclearization. We know what it doesn't mean. Mm -hmm. We know it does not mean unilateral North Korean disarmament. Short of that, the problem has been... <laughs> we know that, uh, Vipin, but does, but does the President <laughs> of the United States know that? You know, there was a time when I believe that President Trump, you know, was... I, 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 in in, in uh, Foreign Affairs, my co-author and I wrote, uh, Ankit Panda and I wrote this line that, you know, basically this process has been Kim Jong-un pretends to disarm and Trump pretends to believe him. <laughs> right. And there was a while before the Hanoi summit that I believe that President Trump had fully accepted that Kim Jong-un is not willing to give up his nuclear weapons voluntarily, mm-hmm. but that there are objectives, meaningful national security objectives that can be obtained by slowing the growth of the North Korean program. Now, every day that goes by without a grand deal with North Korea is a day that North Korea gets stronger. Since the Singapore summit, it is plausible that North Korea has produced about 12 nuclear weapons, a dozen nuclear weapons, several more ICBMs. All of that continues unabated. They are producing nuclear weapons and long-range ballistic missiles throughout this process. And so it is in American interest, South Korean interest, Japanese interest, Chinese interest for North Korea to stop producing more nuclear weapons material and more nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles. And if that's our objective, slowing the growth of the program, ultimately capping the program, and in the long term you can say rhetorically our ultimate objective is you know, denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, knowing it may not happen in our lifetime, but keeping the force smaller mm. uh, both allows North Korea to secure and manage the weapons it does have, which is a real concern if the regime falls apart or something like that. It also Mm. limits what they can sell to other countries. And that is 
in American national security interest. And I think once we move off, the problem is it's great to say, oh, North Korea should have never gotten nuclear weapons, but they have them. Right. So now that they have them, how do you manage them? And I think keeping the force smaller and manageable uh, is the immediate objective. In the long run, you can have all of the rhetorical you know, objectives you want, but at least in the short term, the most pressing need, I think, is to get North Korea to the table to talk about what the price is to slow down the growth of the program to start with. Vipin, this is a, a, a man, uh, Donald Trump, who pulled the U.S. out of a landmark anti-nuclear treaty with Iran that had been, you know, years in the making that uh, by even uh, the administration's own measure had been working. Uh, is there any reason to believe that he would have any more success. I mean, one of the one of the problems that uh, Donald Trump at least said he had with the uh, with the Iran Treaty was that, oh, they had ballistic missiles and they were testing missiles and so forth. But here he is, uh, you know, w watching uh, North Korea test these missiles and saying, oh, they're no big thing. I mean, right. how do uh, 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 these right, seem to be opposite right. processes I, going on at the same time? Yeah, and, and, and it's we treat them separately or often the media treats them separately mm -hmm. and but they're linked. Iran looks at how North Korea is being treated. Mm -hmm. The red carpet was literally rolled out for Kim Jong-un. He is allowed to test ballistic missiles and get love letters from uh, President Trump. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the Iranian, uh, Iranian leaders are getting death threats from the president. And, you know, yeah. we'll end you if you, right? And so the, if you're Iran, you say it is good to be a nuclear weapons power. And all yeah. this does is incentivize Iran, now that the United States has ripped up the JCPOA, is to say, you know what, maybe it's not the worst thing to have nuclear weapons if you get treated like royalty if you have them and treated like dirt if you don't. And so, uh, you know, we're, in a, I think, in a dangerous phase where Iran is slowly, there are certain, the steps that they've taken, you know, in the last couple of weeks when the United States zeroed out uh, the, the waivers mm -hmm. uh, on petroleum exports from, uh, from Iran were not totally unexpected. I mean, uh, you know they're going to increase the amount of LEU that they have and the heavy water, uh, but you know the the real deadline in two months is you know will they blow past the 3.67 percent LEU enrichment, enrichment. line? Yeah. Uh, which you know I think that would be a signal that you know what this they're they're not going to play ball and hold you know unilaterally restrict themselves now that the U.S. has pulled out of the JCP even though European partners are in it. Um, but you know it, it the the irony is that the hardliners in the United States. That want to, you know, press Iran and press North Korea. Forget that those countries have hardliners also, and that the more that we pressure Iran and zero out their ex their exports, the harder it is for those that supported the JCPOA in Iran to stay in the JCPOA and limit themselves to 3.67 percent enrichment levels. Uh, 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 and so, you know, I think that you're right. We, it's very difficult to envision a deal with the Iranians that was better than the JCPOA. Now, there were problems with the JCPOA. Everyone was well aware of the limits on the JCPOA, mm -hmm. the sunset provisions that didn't cover ballistic missiles, Iranian behavior, but it wasn't designed to. It couldn't. It's a deal. So, right. you know, you're not going to get everything you want in a deal, and that's what the Iranians were willing to accept. And then you have to ask yourself, is a world with the JCPOA in that incarnation better than a world without? And I think it was. It was working. And the whole idea was not necessarily... You know, to the critics of the JCPOA would say, you know, it didn't stop the Iranian intent 
to pursue nuclear weapons. Well, it wasn't designed to. Right. It was designed to detect them if they cheated and acted on that intent. And it was working on that count. And, and, so, then, and then you have uh, tr- Trump now turning around and saying, well, uh, the important thing with Iran is that they don't get nuclear weapons, which was exactly what the deal did. Yeah. He said on uh, on Monday... I want something joint and comprehensive. Maybe, yeah, ex- you know, exactly. Them. Maybe get a number of countries together and come up I with know. an agreement. He, he said, he said uh, well, he did say, and this is kind of, uh, pardon me, insane, on Monday, he was uh, quoted as, Trump was quoted as saying that Iran, quote, would like to make a deal, and I think that's very smart of them, and I think that's a possibility to happen. Now, Iran on Tuesday has said they see no prospect of a deal with the U.S. Its foreign minister saying at a news conference that Iran pays no attention to words. What matters to us is a change of approach and behavior. Um, so Donald Trump imagines there is some deal in the works with Iran. Iran doesn't see anything of the sort. Yeah, it's hard to, you know, it's it's very difficult to envision a deal that is much better than the JCPOA. Now, maybe you can get the JCPOA with an extended sunset provision now. But, you know, with the the, the, the pressure, on the one hand, you think, you know, actually Iran is probably more susceptible to the pressure than North Korea is because it, there, it does depend on, on petroleum exports, mm-hmm. and it's a much more integrated, globalized uh, economy. Uh, but on the other hand, the domestic politics of it suggests that, you know, you've really, we've really emboldened the hardliners in Iran now. Yep. Uh, and it's difficult to see them supporting anything like returning to the JCPOA, so, so long as President Trump is in office. And there was a, you know, there was this narrative out there that the Iranians had basically given the United States Trump's first term. And would wait to see who got elected in 2020 before doing anything really rash. But we're now in what you know, in international relations, we call potentially a spiral model, right? Every move of ours, the military buildup, uh, you know, Trump walking away from that, but not, you know, still insisting on maximum pressure. Right now, when I see the the administration's policies towards North Korea and Iran, there are sympathetic and optimistic views of them and positive spins on them possible. There's just so much dysfunction within the administration about what's going on, where the president is undercutting his own administration and vice versa. You can forgive these countries for thinking, like, what is going on in Washington and in the White House, and which policy pronouncements do we take seriously? Uh, And if we can't even sort it out here in the United States, you can imagine how difficult it is for those that aren't familiar with our domestic political processes to figure it out. Yeah, and that's what uh, troubles me, uh, Vipin uh, Narang. I will, will last question before I let you go. Uh, it, am I, you know, Trump, with all of this that's going on, am, am I uh, kind of crazy? Is it wrong? I, I almost feel like, you know what, the status quo is Fine. If there's no deal with Iran, if there's no deal with uh, with uh, North Korea, particularly, it feels like they are both sort of powder kegs. If Donald Trump needs to uh, either pretend or believe that, oh, there is no threat here, there is no threat there. I'm kind of fine with the status quo. I'm kind of fine waiting out the uh, the Donald Trump regime until it's over, even if it means that North Korea is is building up its weapons and so forth. At least we are seemingly far away from those fire and fury threats right. of Tr- Trump's first year. Is, is it you know, uh, wrong? Term, yeah. No, in the short term, I think that's exactly right. I, and I think, I think truly Donald, President Trump's instinct is not to start a war. I think he hates war. He thinks it's a waste of money. And, you know, for him, he would love to bring the truth back from South Korea and never have to deal with 
you know, uh, a conflict in East Asia mm-hmm. or the Middle East ever again. I actually think that's his instinct, which is why he undercut the military buildup in Iran and why he's willing to downplay uh, the missile test in North Korea. And you're right, I'm actually willing to, you know, the, the horse is out of the barn in North Korea. You're not going to take away their nuclear weapons. Right. And the aim should be to avoid a war. So in the short term, I think that's right. The In the medium term, the risk with this strategy is that, you know, North Korea miscalculates or Iran miscalculates, and then Trump flips. Mm-hmm. If there's one thing with President Trump that I think we've seen is, that, you know, he doesn't want a war, but if he feels like he's been betrayed or, you know, if the U.S. is, is hit, by any uh, by any adversary, he will hit back very hard. Yeah, or if and he is hit by an adversary, domestic adversary, correct. and things get tr- tough correct. for him, that's what uh, his, his as unstable as uh, he is. That actually concerns me. I feel like Donald Trump with nuclear re- weapons is right now more of a threat than Kim Jong Un with nuclear weapons. Uh, I don't know if I go that far, but I mean there is a well, there is a, the sole authority question also, right? When the sense that you know, the if President Trump wanted to launch nuclear weapons, nothing can stop him legally. I know. If he issued a valid and authentic order, uh, short of a massive, you know, a, a widespread mutiny among missileers and our our Navy, you know, it'd be very difficult to stop him. But I truly think he doesn't want a war, and that's, you know, something that, um, you know, we look at the, the undercutting of the advisors, but in both cases, he's actually undercut them in ways that have, walked us down potentially from crises and in the short term you know your instinct isn't i i I agree with that it actually hasn't uh he lowered the temperature in both cases and that's great in the short term and in the long run the problem is you know if uh you know the this this dysfunction isn't sorted out we are setting ourselves up for crises in both areas well i hope that uh you are right in in your estimations and i hope we never find out if you or i are right about who is the most dangerous of those two uh vipin narang associate professor of political science at mit uh greatly uh appreciate you joining us today you can find uh, narang you should follow him on the twitters at narang vipin that's n-a-r-a-n-g V-I-P-I-N. Vipin, really appreciate you joining us today, sir. Thanks, Brad. It was a pleasure. You bet. Okay, running really late. So my (laughs) thanks to Desi Doy and our producer, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. And my thanks as ever to those who support our work by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. That's it. Until we meet again soon, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.